In Marisol Cortez's novel, Loose at Midnight, the setting is San Antonio in the near future, where slow, stuttering strides are being made to go carbon neutral. But the displacement of the poor and vulnerable comes to the fore in these rich negotiations, while extreme weather events devastate lives further, and the rich get richer in the race to move away from fossil fuels. The author has said she wanted to write a novel that was both speculative and plausible, steeped, too, in the history of San Antonio, including its long story of social movements. The novel offers a world of insights on environmental justice that remains a story about love, too. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Marisol Cortez about her novel, Loose at Midnight. This is a little section from a, uh, a chapter called Luce is Born. Isn't clear who Luce is. In the excerpt, know that she is a street dog who's being born in a lightning storm in Breckenridge Park. Dark and profound, she did not have an idea of Luce before birthing her. Not even she knew why it happened or why it happened where it did. La Brackenridge, near the river, not far from where the springs began, their dry mouth tucked deep within the pocket of the nun's campus, not far from the zoo, across from where the city people had long swept their stray animals into a pile for incineration, and where midnight cars subsequently stopped to dump their unwanted litters. Not far from where families barbecued on Easter Sunday, camping in their cars the night before so they could stake out a choice table. Why and where were the sketchy parts? Neither she, nor the equationists, nor the poets could have explained that. How, maybe. Something about the way pieces of ice in a cloud became polarized during a storm, positive and negative energies pulling apart as particles collided. A cloud battery, in essence, searching for a circuit as the people of the city below rushed to their sagging porches and dusty driveways to witness a promise of the first rain in many months to feel the wind tear wildly at their clothes and hair, to feel an ambient wildness answered by a presence within, part exhilaration and part terror. Something or someone searched for them, turning them out of doors to see for themselves despite warnings, shooing them back inside with a broom like children or kittens. What was gonna happen? She rolled into the city from the north, restlessly searching for grounding, for a meeting with something or someone she didn't know yet. How would she know what she was looking for then? It must be that whatever, wherever, whoever she met was what she was supposed to meet. Maybe it mattered, but maybe not. She was furious, frantic with pent emotion, arms surging and summoning like a conductor. With all of her strength, she, she forced apart the sticky, crackling energy of the ground itself. She pulled its buzzing sparks of amber upward through the air, sucking quicksand through a straw. As they rose along their luminous channel, she stretched and descent, beckoning as she forked and branched, reaching for the ground with her many hands, for something growing there like claymation, reaching back. Clasping branches a second later, the switch closed and amber flowed. As she flashed skyward, she felt the massive belly of her power drain to earth at Brackenridge Park in a single catastrophic surge, narrowly missing the train tracks and its curtains of bamboo kindling. Seconds later, she swiped at the air again in another knife stroke. 
An avalanche of boulders tumbled through the sky in response, and she shred a utility pole in the process, which carried its own river of power west from a downtown substation. As the clouds cracked over one half of the city, the other half went dark. Shaking with the cold of her newness, Luce crawled glistening through a gale of bamboo, tail low and fur matted and wet. She found the banks of the swelling river and traced them, finally stopping somewhere north of the water to sleep and sleep until the storm had passed. Thank you so much for reading that. Marisol, I want to ask you why you chose that excerpt to read to us, but then also if you can weave in a little bit of a synopsis of the novel for our listeners who have not yet read the book. Okay, sure. Part of my selection of that piece was super, super, super pragmatic. Um, It was about looking for a passage that uh, could stand for this really long book um, in a very short amount of time but also kind of uh, symbolize the story as a whole. And, um, and so that passage in particular, I think, um, you know, for any reader who is wondering what Luce is or who Luce is in the title, uh, that passage also kind of gives an uh, introduction to that uh, really critical piece of the story. Um, I mentioned that the, in case it isn't too obvious in that, uh, that little segment, um, Luce is uh, a street dog who is, uh, we're sort of the reader sort of being asked to um, suspend disbelief that a lightning storm could uh, possibly spontaneously generate this, this animal. So there's a little bit of magical realism there. Um, but it takes place in a part of the city that is um, near and dear to my heart, um, near where I grew up, which is Brackenridge Park, which of course is very historically um, and spiritually significant to the city of San Antonio. So, so it's also, I mean, I selected that piece as well because it uh, it is a book that is so much about place and um, the politics and the history of a place and also our, our, our deep um, spiritual connections to, to the land itself in this place. Um, and so that passage, I think, um, also kind of illustrates like the, one of the central themes of the book, which is um, the mysteriousness of um, that persists or that exceeds our our efforts to really like systematize or theorize or understand history or politics or power or love, you know, all of the things that we try to understand and and control in a way by understanding. Nonetheless, there's something that, that something mysterious that will always sort of like, uh, yeah, exceed our efforts to, to do that. Right. And so that's loose as well. She's the street dog who's generated in a lightning storm related to climate change in this very, you know, significant part of the city, which was also the place where people would dump animals, which was also, and the city would get rid of its stray animals there. Um, um, but then she's also this element of chaos or 
randomness or just sort of the animating principle of the or of, of the universe right like mm-hmm. it's it's a book about what what makes things happen the way they happen like why do we cross paths with people what makes power work the same the, the way that it that it does and produce the same outcomes again and again what is the element that can disrupt those orders which can disrupt power um which can disrupt our lives um, for better or worse, you know, on a personal level. It's a very short passage that does a lot. <laughs> it really does. It, and it's so profound. I mean, it's such a gorgeous piece. Your writing is so lyrical and so beautiful for page after page. Um, and then at the same time, there's something else going on that's so interesting. So with this idea of power, as you say, I mean, there is there is the power of love here. The, there is a love story here between the characters of uh, Lali and Joel. And it's a story about a lot of other dramatic subjects. But at the heart of it is this really complex discussion of environmental justice issues, of climate change, um, and Lali is an organizer. I mean, there it's, you know, it's like a deceptively, um, simple idea on the surface to just, you know, sort of look at it. Oh, this is a book about San Antonio and there's a love story. Oh, but there's so much more going on around mm-hmm. the issue of climate change. So I want to ask you about this, about your, your background. How did you become so passionate about these climate change issues that that are really running through this what's what's a work of fiction right but but that still has a lot of elements of things that are all too real like i was politicized probably early on as a young person as a teenager um most profoundly around environmental issues um well i wasn't i was just out of my teens um, with the PGA, actually, the Professional Golf Association Village that was proposed uh, over the Edwards Aquifer, like, you know, 20-something years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I had already sort of been an environmentalist um, in a more traditional sense of, you know, uh, doing stuff around recycling or thinking about overconsumption of resources kind of like that kind of environmentalist. But um, when I did, I, I, I had been away from San Antonio. I grew up here as a kid and then we had, we were, we, we moved to a rural uh, part of Texas in Comal County. Um, but then I came back to San Antonio after college and that's where I got very involved in the PGA uh, village uh campaign that was going on here. And that was, um, that really opened my eyes, not just to environmental issues, but the way that environmental issues are always bound up with these histories of racism, histories of, um, economic injustice, histories of, um, gender, uh, oppression, um, histories of colonialism, right? Um, because I saw, because I saw it with my own eyes kind of first hand and close up how there were so many issues coming together in that struggle around water. Um, you know, it was, it was an environmental struggle over water, over the protection of the aquifer, but at the same time, it was also about questions of disinvestment, um, where, where money gets 
spent, which parts of the city receive funding for infrastructure, right? Um, historically and which have not. Uh, it was also, you know, I saw, um, I went to some of the court hearings, I think when there, were, there was a court case filed um, against the project. And I saw the way the, um, the male, the white male lawyers representing the developers treated the legal team that was representing um, the community interests uh, in stopping the project, which were, which were, which were Chicanas, they were Chicana lawyers, the way that they were talked down to, the way that they were treated sort of um, condescendingly. So I, that's really, I think where I, um, that initial kind of like spark or passion, which was not just a, an emotional passion, but it was an intellectual passion as well. Like what, what is going on here and what explains it and what is the history of this? Um, at the time I was involved in that struggle, I already kind of knew I was about to leave San Antonio again. I had been accepted into a graduate program in California. Um, and, and so I went to school and, um, and I studied environmental justice history. I learned that there was that, that there's even a word for what that struggle was. Like I didn't know uh, at the time that I was involved in the PGA that that's, oh, you know, this is what we call this. We, this we call environmental racism or we call it colonialism. Like I didn't know that. So I learned some of that stuff in school. Um, and then came back to San Antonio after I was finished with my graduate program um, and kind of fell into like climate organizing uh, a little bit by uh, like by happenstance. Like there was a, a job opening um, at a local um, uh, grassroots group and they had gotten funding for uh, specifically a climate justice organizer and um, and I applied and and got the job and so uh, so my understanding of climate actually kind of happened. It was a sort of like crash course on the ground of like uh, organizing specifically around the uh, South Texas nuclear expansion uh, about ten a little more than ten years ago. Um, that was sort of my introduction to like climate politics and climate justice specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, you say something so interesting about this idea that you didn't know there was a word for it. Yeah. And that's, I feel sometimes like there's an issue there with how we don't have a language sometimes to talk about these persistent problems. I mean, I've read plenty of novels that are described by publishers as climate change novels, but I truly have not read one that came close in terms of depth and breadth like this one. And I feel like there's something that happens here um, that you're telling these vitally important stories about climate change through fiction mm-hmm. rather than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there's, you know, there are elements of history and nonfiction stories about San Antonio woven into the fiction here, mm-hmm. but that can help the average person in regards to finally accepting that we're in it, that we're living through it right now, and there really can't be any denying it. Like to give give it a name, to know what the word is, but then to have these stories that 
you've witnessed, you've observed, you've heard, you've experienced, you've seen all around you, um, and to tell them through a work of fiction, like how did you, with this background that you have, how did you settle on like, well, this is going to be the way I get this particular message out is through this, you know, 450 page novel. Um, how did you come to that point? Um, I think one of the things fiction, I didn't, I didn't realize what I was writing when I started. That's one answer. I didn't realize what I was doing when I started doing it. It was more like it was, this thing was just coming out of me and I was just, uh, stepping out of the way. Um, I, uh, although I did, when I started kind of writing, kind of storyboarding ideas, putting little scenes down on note cards and rearranging them and figuring out the, oh, this is like one story. I did kind of realize that it was, um, that it was going to be a work of fiction, but I really held off for a long time calling it that because I was worried that if I called it that, it would stop coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Scare it away. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing too, I think, I think what fiction can do that nonfiction can't and that organizing can't and that academic writing can't is it can, it can, it doesn't have to like the origin of the book, the origin of everything that I write creatively is my uncertainty or is a question that I can't, I just can't figure out for myself. Um, It's a working through of um, what we don't know in a way that you really, like politics proceeds from conviction, right? Like we know, we have the analysis and we know what to do about it. Um, Academic writing is a lot the same way. Like we have an argument we're trying to make, uh, we're gonna make that argument about what it is and what we're gonna do. Um, Nonfiction, you know, kind of similar, everything proceeds from certainty, but fiction, can proceed from and actually be driven by like uncertainty and it doesn't have to be closed off at the end either. Like, uh, I don't know that the book, I think there's a pressure, I think with, especially with like climate change fiction or environmental justice fiction or environmental fiction to think that this is the way that we kind of process and it is, uh, you know, this question of like, well, what do we do? Mm-hmm. But I don't know that the book, the book starts with questions and it ends with questions. And and actually, it's funny, the, the cover art uh, by David Zamora Casas, um, when I saw the title of the piece that became the cover, I knew like, oh, my God, if I ever get this published, like, I'm going to ask David if I can <laughs> use it because the title is, is question everything. Um <laughs> I think uh, I've been reading uh, actually some academic work uh, by a scholar named uh, Nicole Seymour, who is a a queer ecology, a queer ecologist or a queer theory. She kind of combines queer theory and environmental studies in interesting ways. Um, and, And she has this book called Bad Environmentalism or Bad Environmentalist or something like that. And she she and other people have made this point that like mm, 
we assume in environmental movements that like knowledge is going to be enough. Hmm. Once people know what's going on, once they can give it a name, they're going to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we just tell people what's happening, if we just tell people like that knowledge is going to fire them up. But, but actually with something like climate change, like research has shown that knowledge is actually paralyzing. Hmm. Um, the more we know, the more we're like, ah, like what can we do? <laughs> um, and so that action she, her suggestion is like, well, maybe action doesn't require knowing what to do. Um, maybe the grounding for agency, for political agency, or like can come out of uncertainty or can come out of um, kind of a liberation from this idea that like mm, expert knowledge is going to save us. Um, and and so in the book, you know, Lali is kind of like, that's her that's her flaw. She's an academic. So she, she thinks if you just, you know, tell, (laughs) if you just come up with the right analysis, we will know what we need to do. And if we just present the right analysis to the city, um, they're going to be swayed by our arguments and they're going to change their course. And, and she finds out that's not, that's not how it works, Mm -hmm. but the book doesn't solve the question in the end, I think, um, either, about what we do other than to say like, like maybe that's, uh, maybe we actually need to be freed from this kind of like false conviction and ground our politics in something else. But that's what's so interesting too about the speculative side of Mm -hmm. this. Um, I mean, speculative fiction tells us an all too real story Um, Mm -hmm. or at least it serves, I mean, as a cautionary tale, but I'm so interested in this idea about you can have all the knowledge in the world and know what to call things to go back to what I was saying before. And then what, I mean, we have the vaccine, (laughs) we have all the experts telling us, and there are still people who will not, um, move in the direction of, um, the reality that, you know, we're not out of, we're really not out of the, we're not post pandemic yet. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, here it is, we've never experienced anything like this before. And we have a lot of questions and we sort of, we sort of plod along. And when we start to get some answers, I think, yeah, I think it's, I don't want to simplify it and just say, oh, it's so overwhelming, but what is it, right? What, What is so paralyzing then about that part of it too? Um, you know, there's this book about, this new book about Edgar Allan Poe. It's called um, The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, and it's by mm-hmm. a guy named uh, John Tresh. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about Poe in this kind of, like, he's like a caricature, like he's a cartoon, right? He's just, he's this guy, you know, with his hair a certain way, and his, you know, he, we can picture him and the raven, and and we just mm-hmm. sort of boil things down to that but he was um he was a polymath and like Mm -hmm. a true polymath and he wasn't just like this guy who wrote spooky stories he wrote in all genres uh he wrote science journalism and what i didn't know was that he would predict these scientific theories that then emerged after his death like Mm -hmm. 
theories, you know, of relativity or, you know, quantum multiverse. <laughs> I mean, just like these these crazy ideas that I never would have that I didn't know about Paul. I was I was really ignorant about his story. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was reading it, I, I couldn't help but think about Luce at Midnight. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know. I considered that with this subject, if you just kind of look around, sniff the air, just be the slightest bit curious and aware, the facts in front of us are are undeniable. Um, you know, and just like this weaving of, uh, you know, the sensibility of storytelling or the sensibility of curiosity with storytelling. I don't know. That just seems to me like there there's something very Poe-ish <laughs> or polymath-ish um, about this work that I found to be a, a kind of a joy to read. I mean, it's just such a, besides like the gorgeous prose, but then there's just like this, you know, I consider myself a somewhat informed person, but there's so much more to know. And to to know it within uh, this package of this work with these characters. And I do have to say, like, this is a purely Sananto book. And these figures that, um, these characters that are in here, like, I feel like I kind of know them. <laughs> uh, and I certainly know this place. And I certainly know Brackenridge. I mean, these amalgams of people. Um, and some spaces as well. So I, it's just such a such a complex book, um, and in the best possible way. I say that to you. It's just it's it's really kind of miraculous to me as I'm holding it. It's just like wow, it's genre bending. Um, it's just so so many things um, around around this idea. Now, I do want to ask you, I know how the book building process works. So I, I know you you didn't know, like with some kind of Poe, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, um, supernatural pinpoint accuracy about the weather events that we had in Texas in February yeah. that just underscored like the spectacular failures of the power yeah. grid and uh, the blackouts, the deaths of dozens of people alongside some pretty horrendous things that happened to people in terms of their housing and their health. And the thing is that the events of of 2021 in February were really not the first time Texas has faced such a debacle of like these huge proportions where the responses to weather are concerned. But the headline from like more than one review of your book has been that you like foresaw the blackouts (laughs) Um, if not that you predicted the weather, (laughs) I mean, there was like this kind of uncanny element to it when you're reading it, like, wait a minute, I know she did, she wrote this, uh, some time back. So can you talk about maybe what you experienced in February with that weather event that we had, um, and what you witnessed and not, not necessarily that you knew that we would come to this point, but I, I am curious to know what you were thinking, um, in those very dark moments. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was weirded out. Um, I think in the same way that 
you know, the people writing the headlines. Um, <laughs> yeah. Viewers of my book were weirded out. Um, I, I knew that that part of the story was not speculative. I knew it was research-based, you know, and specifically based on the event of uh, February 2011, uh, which was a similar polar vortex event that happened here. I don't think it was as, as extensive or destructive as this one, but um, so I knew that, you know, it wasn't speculative. It was based on a lot of reading that I had done into, I read the sociological literature of blackouts. You know, I read histories of blackouts. I read uh, kind of public health literature on how people in other cities, whenever there have been heat waves, who is impacted and how. I read media accounts of the February 2011 event and kind of analyses of what happened and why and where the blame lay and all that. So, but even so, I was still, it was still weird. It was still really freaky. And, um, uh, but when we were living through the freeze and, and we, um, I don't know, it must be where we live. We were lucky to not lose power. Um, we did lose some water uh, access, but not to the point where we had like no water. Um, but when we were living, but still it was really hard and it was really stressful. Um, we live in an older neighborhood. We live on the near Southwest side um, in an old house built in 1940 that doesn't have central heat and air. Um, and it's hard to keep warm and it's hard to keep cool. So we were, um, I mean, I think I, I think what I, when it was that I knew that something big was happening was when we, beforehand, before the storm came through, uh, we went out to try to get some space heaters because we only had like one working space heater and our oven. Um, and there was nothing, there was nothing hmm. in the stores. And I was like, oh my God, hmm. like something, this is bad. Um, we did manage to get some space heaters from some friends. Um, and then we just like basically stayed in one room of our house like for a week because that's where the space heaters were. Um, with myself and, and my partner and, and our two kids. Um, so I think what I didn't realize, like living through it, having written something about a previous event, I couldn't have anticipated um, that it was much worse hmm. than than I had written about, um, that we were living through something that was along the lines of like Katrina, mm -hmm. uh, which I didn't really like, it didn't hit me until after it had kind of, um, you know, after it had passed, um, that this was a climate disaster and we had, um, and it wasn't going to be the last time. And, um, and it was scary. It, it really, you, you really felt the precarity of the system and, like just how easy it would be to die uh, if if you didn't have a little margin of, of privilege keeping you from allowing you to have a little heat and a little water. We spent a few days trying to assist a, a friend of ours who has uh, muscular dystrophy and lives with his mom who uh, is a cancer survivor, uh, but she's immunocompromised from chemo. They. Um, he relies on all his me medical equipment. They couldn't go to a cold shelter, right? Because of <laughs> her being immunocompromised and not wanting to be around COVID and because of his medical equipment. And they were just 
there was nothing. There was nothing that could, the fire department could come out and fill his oxygen tank, but they couldn't do anything to restore power for his other machines. The people that helped him were the people in the community. You know, it was people on social media. It was people texting other people. It was, it was really scary. It was much scarier than I think. I think I would like what I actually thought was like, wow, uh, now I see like all of the ways that I miswrote this part of the book, you know, like having lived through it, I would have written it differently, maybe. Well, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> I, th- I feel like um, you gave us a story. And this, this is another story. You know, it's, um, it's still incredible to me. I mean, the details that you're sharing right now. Um, it's, it's incredible that in 2021, we would be enduring this, that your friends would be enduring that, that they would, you know, they would still have to find a way to subsist in, in their houses because of these health issues that they have. Um, it's, it's incredible to me, the stories that I've heard too, we lost power for, for a few days and, Mm -hmm. My students told me some nightmarish, absolutely yeah. night horrific stories about things that they went through. So, you know, and I, I have to say that the, the stories that, that are in this book, and there are all kinds of stories, and there's poetry, and there's history, and there's, there's a love story at, at the heart of it, but the, this is a story also about communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been on such a long journey with this book and these issues that I just feel like when I heard the news about this major award that you received for Loose at Midnight from the Texas Institute of Letters, I just, I just wondered about what was going through your mind. What, what does it mean to you to have that recognition after such a long road, after such a long, and I'm sure that it was a painful road part of the time too, with a lot of sacrifice. Um, But a lot went into this book um, because you were doing other things. You weren't uh, writing the whole time, but you were doing other things. You were helping and organizing and canvassing and doing doing all of this other work and researching and being a mother and mm-hmm. uh, being a partner and etc. And so I just wonder, what does it mean to you to have that recognition? Awards are awards. The work is the yeah. thing, right? The work is the thing. But I, I just, I wonder about that. What, what was going through your mind? I, um, it's still really, I'm like incredulous. Like, um, it's kind of funny story how I heard about it. Um, uh, about midnight one night, a few months ago, um, Godman, um, the Hoya texted me and she was like, congratulations. I was like, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Um, she's like, yeah, you got the TIL award. I was like, wait, what? Cause I hadn't gotten, uh, I had gotten a call the day before from a number I didn't recognize, so I didn't pick it up, um, which I learned later was was them calling me to tell me. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Carmen Tafoya was the poet laureate of, of, of our city and also of the state, yeah. 
Yeah, and she's she's been she's all, but she's an amazing community minded, um, just beautiful person inside <laughs> and out who helped me a lot. Uh, like with publishing, you know, when I first realized I was going to try to send it out for publication, I I talked to her and she gave me advice. You know, so she's just very generous that way. Um, it's overwhelming. I, it's just even to have gotten a press. Um, to publish it, I think, much less to have it be recognized on that level is, is, is just, like for a long time I didn't really give myself permission to call myself a writer or to, to, I didn't feel, I didn't occur to me that I could try to share my writing with the world. Um, and then when I did kind of make that transition in my life and decide and realize, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, um, yeah, it was a really big shift, and um, it's just it's just an incredible honor. Marisol Cortez, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed talking thank to you. you. Yeah. Likewise, I really appreciate your interest in the book. Marisol Cortez is the author of Loose at Midnight. It's published by Flower Song Press. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 